I wonder about it because I'm kind of like, if you had the email to send it to a fax machine, why didn't you just email it? I'm sure there's some legal aspect to this. Cause sometimes when I like buy, I like real estate myself as well. It's like some of the things that I do around it, I'm like, there must be some law which hasn't been changed yet where this, you know, somewhere it would, it, someone said thou shall fax this to someone for it to be legally binding. Yeah. Somebody in the government said that, and nobody's changed the rules in 38 years. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Lonnie Stark. Lonnie, thanks for doing this. Thanks for inviting me and being brave enough to uh, have me on the show. So tell me what you get to do all day as the head of global strategy and product management and marketing for uh, the Global <laughs> Experience Manager. Oh, that's a, very, that's a very direct question. So what do I do all day? I think one is I work with my team to make sure that what we're hearing from customers and how they're thinking about using our solution, in this case, Adobe Experience Manager, how they want to use it to deliver the kinds of uh, experiences out to their customers. So whether it's through their website, mobile apps, right? This is an area that a lot of the companies we work with are thinking about, uh, especially after this year of COVID. And trying to make sure that that translates into our product roadmap, what we're building, and how we are then working with the rest of our partners' ecosystem to make sure the solution that our customers are getting are one is one that is effective, one that helps them move from maybe being directly, you know, in the sort of brick and mortar or through all of the sort of analog channels and being able to take their business and transform their business so that they can be as competitive digitally. So that when you and I go onto a website to shop or use a mobile app or even, you know, get fancy and use a mobile app in a store that that experience is something that makes us go, geez, we want to buy, we want to do more business with a particular brand. And for people who are maybe more familiar with Photoshop or Illustrator or products like that, and, and not as familiar with what Experience Manager does, can you explain that? Absolutely. And I take no offense to that. Photoshop and Illustrator are like B2C products. So even it's funny, one time I was in Hawaii and someone came up while I was on vacation, even asked me like a Photoshop question. So totally get that that area is something everyone touches. The part of the business I work on is actually B2B. So most people haven't heard about it, but they probably visited a website or a digital experience that has been powered by what I work on, which is Adobe Experience Manager, and that's part of the whole entire um, experience cloud. And this is a part of Adobe's business that's focused on helping brands. So the brands like Under Armour, like Dun & Bradstreet, like Walmart, figure out how they actually build out digital experiences. So intranets, .com sites, commerce sites, in order to better you know, serve their, their customers. So you and I. And so that's the part of the business I work in. And it's a suite of solutions that, one, <laughs> it's a big consumer of Creative Cloud. So it takes a lot of the content from Creative Cloud and pumps it onto websites, mobile apps. There's also being able to understand the customer 
So analytics, insights that are drive- driven, and then the commerce component. So being able to help not only create these great experiences, but help companies make money from them, monetize it, whether it's through a actual store or something much more seamless, like you read an article, you look at a video and be able to click through to purchase. So sorry for the logistics questions here, but yeah. like if I'm if I'm looking you guys up on site and I'm watching like the quick the demo videos right off the the web page the homepage yeah. right mm-hmm. um I mean the the way you guys edit websites and stuff at least in the video it makes it look like as easy as like Wix or Squarespace or something like that is yeah. this like going on top of somebody's WordPress is this native HTML like what like if I if we do our website through Adobe Experience Manager what does that mean or how does that actually logistically yeah. That's that's a great question. And so it doesn't sit on top of something else. But I love the fact that as you looked at our website and you were like, hey, I saw the demo. It looks like someone who's using Wix or Squarespace is as easy to use. And what we provide is for companies, the ability for anyone in the organization to be able to edit a web page or be able to manage digital assets or with little training, be able to put up new products, for example, on a store or to manage that part of it. So what we do is we provide the technology for doing that. What makes us different than some of the like Wix, Squarespace is that we really cater to mid-sized companies and enterprises. Now, what does that mean? It means that when someone is like, if I set up a store or a website, which I actually have for my personal art stuff, I actually have a, a site on using one of those technologies. I'm one person, okay? And if I want to change the logo, I can change the logo. If I want to change the picture, I can change the picture. If I make a bad mistake on it and publish like an embarrassing photo of myself, you know, the only person I'm embarrassing is myself, Okay. For a big company, mid-sized enterprise company, uh, they're not quite so uh, loose with their digital experiences. They have thousands of people that are authoring content. They have a brand. You know, Many of our, the companies we work with, their brand is their most valuable asset. right? And so what they want to do is a few other things. They want to be able to really customize that experience. So you reach a limit with some of these other tools on how custom the experience can be. So a company like Coca-Cola, for example, they, for some of their major campaigns, they want to be able to personalize, customize a lot more of that experience. Second is the level of governance and controls. So if you have a company that may have multiple, that operates globally, or even within a particular country, but has uh, different locations and uh, campaigns running and everything else, you want to have a certain level of governance, review, approval through legal, et cetera. So that's another area where a mid-sized company and enterprise differs from an individual business. And then finally, I think, is the level of maturity to be able to optimize and personalize those experiences. So obviously, these companies we work with, either you know they're about 200 million and up in revenues, right? And so they're also looking at how are these digital experiences going to increase conversion rates and the kinds of traffic, for example, they're getting on their website or their store, making a decimal point percent improvement in uplift and engagement or in conversion can mean serious dollars. And so there's a lot of advanced technologies that they want to have in order to do that. And so Experience Cloud gives them that entire uh, suite of capabilities 
to be able to marshal digital customer experiences, to personalize them, to be able to monetize them at scale. So I, I cheated a little bit on some questions for today. Okay. My friend Dave McNamee, who's at Adobe, who's been on this show before, I said, what kind of questions should I have? So you gave me much smarter questions. <laughs> than what I was so you're basically saying if these questions are like really hard, I should call up Dave and say, yeah, what the heck did you tell? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What the heck did you tell Dave? Yes, yes. Um, so one of the things that he brought up, and I didn't know this about Experience Cloud, is there some involvement with non-Adobe developer community in what you've done? How does that work? Yeah, I think it's interesting when you say non-Adobe developer, because in some ways, if we're if they're interacting with us, then they are, I see, sure. as part of our developer community. But you might mean like non-Adobe non technology. Yeah. Ah, got it. <laughs> not, not an Adobe employee, a developer who is not getting a paycheck directly with Adobe okay. logo on it. Okay, that makes it a lot simpler because I'm like, well, aren't they all by definition they're working <laughs> yeah. with our stuff? So yeah, we actually have a tremendous developer community and that's come from a couple of places. One is we are with our enterprise and mid-size you know, company solutions, right? We have out-of-the-box capabilities. But as I showed before, there's a lot of customizations that are needed and innovations that people want. So we have um, developers out there, whether they are working at the brands we work with, so they're being paid by the brands, right? Or from the partners, um, the, ex the partners ecosystem that we have. We also have through the uh, Magento acquisition, Adobe Commerce. And so we also have a lot of, I would say, almost community developers, as well, that are building building you know different innovations on top of our pl platform, and with finally with AEP, the Adobe Experience Platform, we are also engaging with the data scientists and um, people who are looking at data from that perspective. So, uh, a broad uh, developer community, and what's also interesting is that we've invested in tech, our technologies like Experience Manager to standardize some of the developer knowledge that you need and the languages that you need in order to build on our on experience manager. So in the past, maybe you had to understand a lot of things about our solutions in order to develop on it. But these days with some of the technologies like uh, front end JavaScript technologies like Angular, React, we're helping developers really use those standard languages and build rich front ends as an example to, to make it easier for, for developers to create great experiences. You know, I'm interested in that world of, obviously, there's so much more innovation you can benefit from if you can attract them to want to create great things that interface with you, right? What's your approach or what are some of your philosophies to make it more attractive for developers to want to bring bring their A-game to, to enhancing the, <laughs> what you've got? Yeah, I think there's a couple. Um, some of them I think you're going to look at and go, yes, yes, I've heard this before. But others I think I might be able to surprise you with. So first start with the obvious ones. I think that developers uh, really are, and I was a developer, right? So I used to be a developer. I started my career actually at Adobe as a developer. Is I think that they really like to learn things at their own pace. So they want to be reading it either through your dev docs, you know, on your website. They don't necessarily want to start off learning about technologies, talking to people. They may want to talk to other developers. But, you know, for the most part, I remember when I was a developer, I love to crack open an O'Reilly book. I like to go on the website and actually look at samples and things like that. So that's an area that I think is really important is making sure that there is plenty of that self-serve content out there. Another 
area is I do think that developers like that community in showing what they built and talking about problems that they have and sharing different ways of solving for it. And so we also think it's important to have uh, developer events or places where people can get together. And that can be either in, we have something like the Rockstar program, which actually we're having our awards ceremony actually next week, where we had a contest and you know, developers could kind of bring their A game to that. And also we just in February had a virtual developer conference where people got to share, you know, what are the innovations in our solutions, but also how they're innovating on top. For that, we had Royal Fielding talking about even, you know, a throwback to HTTP and just the development of that. That's one area. But another piece that I think maybe something you might have not heard of, which I've observed is a lot of these developers do work in companies with non-tech people, non-developers. And what has also been a challenge is as a developer, I think you build something. And if it's a value to the company, everybody's got an opinion on it. And there's things that need to be changed or updated from different departments, et cetera. And what I think is attractive about Experience Manager is also that we provide tools for non-developers to be able to edit the parts of the application or the thing that the developer built so that the developer doesn't have to be the lackey to the marketing or to the business to say, hey, can you change the content? Can you change the color here? So something like a single page app editor is a great example where a developer can build out an SPA and then hook it into experience manager. And then it's a non-developer can make small edits to it. So that's something that is also attractive, which I think actually developers don't really think about as much when they start building stuff out is like, how are you going to maintain it? And how are you going to make sure that there's a way for those marketers or non-technical people to self-serve in certain ways? Interesting. First of all, what's an SPA? Oh, single page app. Okay. So what that is, <laughs> it's funny. So for those of you that were in the pre-show part of it, Jess and I talked about how I was going to stay away from acronyms and clearly I threw one at him here. So basically single page apps, uh, it's a transition of like, if you think about websites, you have pages that you go and you visit and there are pages that you can read content, etc. Single page apps is a use of, you know, web client side technology to make a page more app, behave more like an application. And that's become more important because if you visit, for example, a website, we saw the transition of going from text to images and videos, and that still continues to climb, but you'll see that pages are sometimes a lot more interactive. So if you're going to a financial services uh, site or your bank, there might be a page that helps you estimate what your refinance you know, options are. And that could be, for example, a single page application. So it's using technologies to make a much more app-like experience on a web page. And what would be an example of an app-like an app -like experience that, that a company might want? Yeah. Is this like, go ahead. So we just talked about the bank banking example where you may want to have some interactivity because you're figuring out how to either get your first home or refinance a home. Yeah. And there's maybe um, questions that's asking you, but also visualization. Another might be a, a car. Or the app is auto-generating that. Essentially, the yeah. single page app is auto-generating that. Yeah. Fill in some forms. 
help visualize exactly. it. Okay. Or, okay. or uh, a car configurator or a shoe configurator. So being able to do some of that would be also more of an app or any experience, frankly, that you are doing through a mobile app right now. The nice thing about mobile app is it's super interactive, but you have to download the app. Whereas single page apps allows you to have that experience that you would have in a mobile app but brought into a web page so you don't have to actually download something. Most companies have a multi strategy in how they do that because it's great when your, your customer has your application, your their mobile app downloaded, but if not, you still maybe want to offer some of that uh, interaction. Yeah. You know, according to the internet, current or former clients have been like Kellogg's, Ford, T-Mobile, Samsung, Nike, GoPro, all these big brands. So when you think about like some of these most iconic brands, what do you feel like you guys have done special? Because there's a lot of competition to earn their business. What do you think you've done special that that they've decided to trust you? Yeah. So some of these really large brands, um, they actually have to work with different teams across the world. And each, even though they might be a global brand, there are unique challenges and unique culture aspects that each of the local teams wants to be able to express as a variation on the brand. So that connects more with their market, their geos. And so I think that one of the things that Experience Manager offers is that flexibility with that control. So what companies have often come to us for is that they want to make sure they're rolling out something that is like the global backbone for their company. And that is both because they want to have the governance around their brand and be able to make sure that's represented correctly across the board, but also because digital, you know, the move to digital and the shift to digital is moving so quickly that the only way that these companies feel that they can continue to keep up is by being able to collaborate on that knowledge and sort of crowdsource that innovation across the board. Okay. So that, that's the control part. However, still having the flexibility, so having the local teams be able to have those workflows to route it to their local legal teams, to be able to use maybe a starting point of a template, but then be able to personalize it, customize it for their particular region and having the rich capabilities to do that. I think that's been one of the key reasons that companies have gone with AEM over the years. Some of the new requirements I've seen over the past year because of COVID pandemic has accelerated the, the move to, to people thinking more about their, their digital properties and how to, how to amp up their business through the digital channels is actually finding a solution that's fast for them to get started. So our cloud service, um, cloud native offering that we released in a very timely way, I would say, last January uh, 2020 at uh, NR allows for companies to start up really quickly, get a site up and running in less than 30 days, and then still have that foundation for all the complexities and you know governance that a larger company needs, which I covered earlier. So that's also been a consideration is all the things I've mentioned, but now there's a greater urgency to start up quickly. What is NRF a conference? What's NRF? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Now we're going we're gonna to start a jar like now. So National Retail Foundation. So it's a federation. So, not, so it's the largest retail consortium and they are, uh, I, I would say, an industry, an industry uh, uh 
uh, group that really pulls together its membership from all the top retailers. Is that like an annual thing or how often does that happen? That happens annually in New York at the Javits okay. Center. Yeah. That's fun. What time of year does that happen? It happens in January and there's, uh, you know, they have other conferences and this is where if someone is actually from NRF listening to this, they'll be like saying, Lonnie, she's got it all wrong. We've got, you know, but I, there's an annual one and there's, a, I think there's a one mid-year, but I would send people to the National Retail Federation's website to check it all out. This is not a sponsored plug. <laughs> um well, it's funny, you know, because I get to speak to people from such different backgrounds and different countries and stuff on the show. And it's interesting how most industries have something like that. You know, we had a guy on who has been inventing really cost-effective high-speed cameras. So like super slow motion cameras, mm -hmm. but they're only like 10 grand instead of 110 grand, you know? Yeah. And so for them, NAB is the big deal in Vegas, right? With the newest gear or, well, you guys are probably there for some other stuff. Yes, too, but, we are too. Right. You know, like, it's funny because the different industries, they kind of have things like this. Like they it, do, but here's the funny part of it. Um, I found not funny actually, but just something I've noticed is that I've been, you know, we've all been right going to different industry sort of events and globally, like you said. And I would say like 15 years ago, they were very different. But over the years, like we've been talking about how software is eating the world and everything. All of them have become so like technology has infused into all of these industries. Like you can't go to a car show without like digital screens everywhere. You can't go to like, you know, in this case, NRF, National Retail Federation's conference, without the discussion of e-commerce or what's happening in terms of uh, direct-to-consumer competitors and how we need to transform the showroom floor. Like at the last NRF that was actually in person right before COVID hit, I was in New York and the whole showroom floor was just filled with folks that were showing, you know, digital signage, right? How do you bring screens into the physical stores? And that's another area experience managers in, which is the digital signage. But anyways, you were probably going to say something super interesting. I cut you off there to bring up a point about technology, but keep going, Jess. <laughs> no, no, it's a good point. I mean, like the great in-person events, there's usually like an app to tell you who's speaking where and when. And like mm -hmm. it is, it does, con you know, they continue to try and find ways to enhance events, right? You know, I, I kind of wanted to go back to one of the other things that you brought up about this idea of, of regional teams and stuff like this. But, but look at it from the opposite direction of what about when we have like a diversified team, you know, geographically distributed teams, but we need them to work on the same thing. Yes. I, I'm interested what you feel like some of like the the advantages and the challenges are at Adobe having, you know, having folks all over the place that need to work on the same project. Yeah, we deal with it at Adobe. And also that's a great reason why we have customers also, our customers adopt uh, experience manager assets for digital asset management for that same reason. And Workfront, right, is really to be able to work in geographically dispersed areas with different skills and being able to bring one campaign out quickly. At Adobe, you know, we've we are, you know, obviously a global company, but when the whole COVID-19 hit, we all I think we every company <laughs> became a lot more remote, 
right? And and had that aspect to it. I think a big part of that is all the collaboration tools that we have. So part of that is obviously, you know, there's like cartoons written about this, right? Video conferencing, definitely something sort of we use to stay on the same page with our meetings. We also start to use Slack a lot more. We were already using it, but just at a much more amped up level. And I think the other, you know, aspect of staying um, together is sort of the file sharing and the assets that we, we need to share. So whether that is through Microsoft um, Teams and SharePoint or through some of drinking our own Kool-Aid, right, from both, or not Kool-Aid, our own champagne or eating our own dog food, whatever your your uh, nourishment of choice is, but of being able to use AM assets for being able to share content or on the creative cl- cloud side, being able to share content in that way as well and using some of the dot cloud sort of, you know, technologies and, you know, for contracts and things like that, Adobe Sign. So we've seen that definite shift to try to stay on the same page with all of these, you know, collaboration tools. Yeah. I love Adobe sign. We're, we, you know, at our commercial real estate fund at Greystoke Investments, it's like, we recently had somebody fax us information. We're like, really? Fax? You know what? We didn't even like, what's funny is us going back though, is like, we don't even like print things out and sign. We just Drop it in Adobe Sign and sign it yeah, and email yeah. it over. I was like, I th- oh, I got, where's my printer? The- I guess I got to find a printer to sign this. No, no, just drop it in Adobe Sign. Well, the fact that you have a fax number or machine, I think, Jess, you invited that one. You, no, no, just- I don't actually have the fax. It was like they emailed it. They emailed a fax to my team member. I was like, really? Got what? it. <laughs> where, where do you even have a fax machine to get the, anyways. Um <laughs> That, so, that one never, that one really like, I wonder about it because I'm kind of like, if you had the email to send it to a fax machine, why didn't you just email it? I'm sure there's some legal aspect to this. Cause sometimes when I like buy, I like real estate myself as well. It's like some of the things that I do around it, I'm like, there must be some law which hasn't been changed yet where this, you know, somewhere it would, it, someone said thou shall fax this to someone for it to be legally binding. Yeah. Somebody in the government said that and nobody's changed the rules in 38 years now, right? Okay. So the the government, they rolled out the COVID vaccine. We love them. Okay. (laughs) We love parts of the government. Okay. So um, uh, my next question is, you know, I was watching the one video about like keeping track of assets and approvals and people being able to pull uh, assets in for different campaigns and things. And I think about, you know, our little media business here, and we've got, you know, folks in the US and Canada and the Philippines, you know, working on working on projects all at the same time. So there's some interesting aspects of that to me. My question for you is, when you think about like, just the sheer volume that a media company has, how might they interact differently with with experience manager versus just like a regular marketing firm that has a lot of photos? Yeah, we actually have some really large media companies that are on AM assets, and we also have marketing companies on it as well. I would say that with AM assets, what we don't deal with, I will say, is like if you take a company like you know NBC or Disney, what we don't handle for them is the 1080p, 5K, two-hour, three-hour shows or things of that sort, right? So that's really a, a different specialized asset management sort of solution for that. What we do work with you know, companies like that on are the 
to different assets, whether that's videos, images, uh, and even for some companies, the their support product support documentation. Like depending on what industry you're in, that could be thousands, tens of thousands of documents in that area. I would say that in that area, the media companies do have more assets that they're dealing with. And so the size of their their sort of repositories tend to be bigger. The other part of it is sometimes they have a lot more complex rights approvals. So if they have a particular movie star or sports personality and they have certain rights in certain countries and things like that, they need to deal with uh, those elements. However, I would say that and you probably see this from your storage, whether you're a media company or not, over the last five years, we've seen exponential growth in the amount of content that any company across any industry is producing. And that's just been mapped to, I think, a couple of things. One, the shift of business to either be digital or digitally augmented. Like you just mentioned, uh, even if you're in the store, you're checking your mobile device, right? Second is the expectation from everyone that they're getting something that's personalized. So if something got sent to you versus me, maybe it looks a little different because you have greater affinity for puppies and I have more greater affinity for cats. I don't know, right? But And and somehow that makes us buy more or feel more happy. So that's the personalization piece is the other element. And I think the third is just the number of the number of devices and the variation of that content. So we have companies that might produce a video or an image and before they cared about delivering it to a laptop and the aspect ratio on a phone. And now they have other devices and croppings and things they want to be able to get it to. The final part of it is machine learning and AI. So we've also seen an increase in the metadata around it. So all of the data around that piece of asset, not only the creation data around it, but also anything around what's the association with a particular campaign, particular audience segment, all of those, all of that metadata around it has become richer. And I think all of that's going to increase because if you think about being able to do personalization at scale, you're going to need, it's not going to be humans that are piecing together these variations. I mean, humans can't even do it fast enough. That's the thing. Even if you had like a lot of people, uh, you couldn't do it fast enough to get to real time that that's all happening with machine learning, with artificial intelligence. And all of those technologies will need content that is tagged and sorted and analyzed in order to say, okay, if this is the person and this is their past sort of affinities, here's the you know content that is going to most be interesting to that person or relevant. It's that specialization thing is, is interesting because I think you know, do you know who Bob Hoffman is, the ad contrarian? Do you know who that guy is? Sounds familiar, but he's like, no, yeah. He's the guy who like really, really calls like digital marketing out on the carpet about like fraud and like when people like exaggerate about things. He he was CEO of a big, you know, big firms. His clients were like Toyota mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But he's like, he's kind of like the voice of reason in certain ways. Yeah. Very sarcastic guy. Anyways, I've been reading his books for years. Finally had him on the show yesterday. But so he brings up some good points of like when like marketers run away with themselves of like, it's like, you know, they want to segment everything when it's like, uh, if the person is 
interested in cars, that's, if, you know, is the person interested in sports cars or not? It's probably the biggest segmentation that matters. <laughs> it, it, like you could be old or young, but if you don't like cars, being old or young didn't matter. What matters is, do you like sports? Mm -hmm. cars, right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it can be overdone, but I, then I think there's other places where it's underdone. Like I think Red Bull has made a huge mistake when they lumped skiing and snowboarding together and call it their snow channel, yeah. because we like skiers and snowboarders have had such a deep divide. There's a lot of yes. hurt there. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. In that community. And so when they put skiing in my feed, I'm like, eh, never mind. I don't need this feed. Right. Yes. Like, can you imagine like when, when somebody's like a diehard Red Sox fan and some, some marketing person without enough precision says, Oh, they like baseball. Let's send them stuff about the Yankees. It's like, ah, not, yeah. not that helpful. Right? No. And I think that's, so I think you bring up a couple of points, right? One is what I almost call like what we learned in chemistry class in high school, which is that you, you know, as a, and, and I tell this to marketers I work with, it's like, when you get our tools, don't like get too, like, it's great you're excited, but don't get overzealous and come up with a hundred segments all at once because it's all about control variables because the fewer segments you can have that has the greatest impact, the better, right? And this is why, like, even sometimes with, we had, we put a, a while back, we have this capability where we use machine learning and AI to do some power matching to actually suggest what segments would actually matter, right? If you didn't know. So that's one thing I think you're bringing up, which I think is a really great point, which is you want to introduce segments and things at the rate that you truly understand your customers. And the other part you're bringing up is that behind the whole segmentation are individuals who either, you know, have some view on a particular sports segment or like even I live near San Francisco, right? In San Francisco, like each neighborhood has its own, like they're very protective, like this road ends this part of the neighborhood. And being able to observe that is not a, just a science thing. There's an art to it. There's a understanding that, that um, piece of it. So I think that's a great point that you're, you're bringing up and doesn't take away from the, the data analytics doesn't take away from just understanding customers by talking to them or understanding people by observing. Yeah. You know, we, we have a lot of like entrepreneurs that listen to the show and investment fund managers and stuff. I'm interested, you know, 20 plus years at Adobe, working with some of the coolest brands around, right? I'm interested in what kind of insights you see like over the next few years that like us as entrepreneurs, as we're thinking about how to brand our companies and, and what our marketing should look like, any kind of like lessons or things that you're seeing that you know, people who don't do what you do all day may not recognize is on the way. Like what, what are some of the upcoming things that you think maybe not everyone sees coming? You know what? It's an interesting question. I think that it's not so much. So I, I will say a couple things here, but I actually think that the most successful entrepreneurs or businesses, it's not about just what they see. It's about how they interpret what they see and whether they take action on it. And I think that's a really important part of it. I think of a few things, though, in terms of what I see. First of all, we've been talking about the empowered consumer for a, lot of for a long time, right? Like, hey, consumers now have choice and all of that. And I think that that is going to continue to be, that will continue to be the, how would you call it the keystone to any any strategy from a business and from a product 
perspective. And what we see now with things like cookie lists, what we see on certain rules around data privacy and governance is it further presses on this point that unless you have the customer's trust and that they're willing to sort of see value in the relationship over time, that you're not going to have a sustainable uh, business. I think that's, that's the first thing. And I remember five years ago when I was in a room with a lot of brands and they were talking about cookies and all of those things. I said, hey, that's great. You're in a period of acquiring customers. So you care about you know, getting more information on those anonymous folks that are coming to your site. But given that you are some of the top brands that I was talking to, the biggest value you have is that you are already a recognized brand and there is a trust element to that and thinking about how you build on that. Because if you're looking at anonymous or just looking at cookie data, it's like going to a party and nobody wants to give you their real name. You know? And it's like, well, how are you really going to build a relationship? And so that's, I think, a big um, piece. And I've seen people change their marketing around that where Yes, they're asking for your email and things, but instead of just putting uh, a pretty picture in front of you or a slogan in front of you, companies are thinking about what's a piece of value that they can provide you in ex- that's relevant to their product. That's maybe something that uh, you would you would give your identity for, and therefore you know have a have a valuable exchange. I think that's one thing. I think the second is that this idea of the whole customer life cycle and uh, the subscription economy and all that, I think we're still in the very beginnings of that, where more and more products, because you're able to create a mobile app around it, or you're able to, you're able to deliver more of that uh, value through software, and the hardware becomes less and less of a part of the product that there is a whole stream of value that can be captured from that. And, you know, I think Tesla is a great example of that, where before it's like you buy a car and it's like everything was static, like you can't change the buttons on anything. And now it's like you can go and change all these features, update it, buy additions like full driving for another, you know, just through your mobile app. And they've actually taken it even further where they're even not telling you and they're changing even some of the hardware configurations on their car based on data around what can be improved or the you know the supply chain that they're they're potentially dealing with so that's i think a second piece of it and some of the innovations we're doing in experience manager and making it so that content can be delivered and and has been delivered to more than the website but to the product experience and everything is part of supporting that transformation that we've seen sort of brands go through. And then I think the third is that there's like, you know, one of the most kind of analyzed data-driven parts of our economy is the stock market, right? You have all of these predictions and people are mapping out what's happening and making price predictions and things like that. And I think that, that with all of the data and understanding marketing and digital experiences and your digital business is going to be even more predictive than and faster moving, right? So it's predictive faster moving because the problem is, is everybody becomes more predictive, things move faster at a greater velocity. And I think that 
the there is importance to tie the data with the content to be able to make sure that you're able to respond as quickly as the industry will evolve to. A stock trade is happening much faster today than it was years ago. And I remember like I was reading an article, I'm not an expert in this area, so claim, but I was reading an article about, you know, data proximity and what's the speed of the uh, connections uh, so that, you know, you're talking about like nanoseconds to get stock trade in and the location is so important because the speed has now surpassed like where actual physical distance is important. And I think that that's going to be something that evolves. But I said, these are the insights, where are the actions people need to take. I don't think anything I'm saying is groundbreaking. I think that a lot of people hear these things and the successful companies I see methodically take action. That's such a good point of the like, that action is such a differentiator. Talk is so cheap, you know? Maybe, maybe a final question here is, you know, so many folks bounce around from company to company these days. I'm interested in I'm interested in any observations that you have of having spent 21 years at the same company, which is a big and continually growing company and and just any any observations from your experience of staying at Adobe for 21 years in a row. Yeah. First of all, credit to Adobe, right? I think that I uh, consider myself uh, lucky and grateful for the team and the company that I found one that I feel that I'm valued at and that has grown and has such a diverse portfolio. I've been I've been asked this question quite a bit, especially in Silicon Valley. People are like, hey, most people stay at company for two or three years. And here's how I uh, think about it. And it's evolved over the years. Most people change companies because they want to change. And I think there's... A couple, uh, there's two ways to, to drive change. One is you take yourself and you put yourself in a new environment. And that environment forces you to change because you're meeting new people, you're in a new business, etc. The other way to change is actually from within. And what I mean by that is that the other way I, you know, I can change is by saying I'm interested in this new area. I'm interested in another area. And it's a self-induced change. And I don't know how many people take that route or consider it an, even an option, right? People go, oh, I need a change and therefore I need to go and plunge myself. And again, I'm not saying that's not a great way to do it. It's a way a lot of people do it and it's awesome. What I've been sort of more interested in is self-induced change and why, and, and that's what I've done. So if you look at even experience manager, which I've had the fortune of working on for the last decade, which to some people sound like a scary amount of time, but we've changed from an on-prem business that was focused only on websites to now a fully cloud native offering that has spanned across to, you know, all of the digital experiences, a company, all the channels a company wants to deliver to a full enterprise class um, digital asset management solution, electronic forms, as well as in the area of, we were just talking about digital signage, right? That's an area where we've seen a greater demand because all of these companies are thinking about how to take their physical properties and make them more valuable. And so I think that's been the way that I've driven um, change. And in a strange way, we all need to do that because we can't escape ourselves. 
Interesting. If you were going to kind of sum that up another direction, similar question, but maybe from the other side, you know, there's so many, again, a lot of people listening to the show are running their own companies, growing their own companies. And retention is such a struggle these days because we have a culture of people hopping from thing to thing. When you think about what Adobe has done right from a retention standpoint, can you, is it giving you chances to grow? What do you, like, what, what do you think are some of the main yeah. principles? What well, do you think Adobe has done right to, to yeah. attract you to stay? I'll say what keeps me at Adobe. And then I'll tell you what I think about, what I think about in terms of trying to retain the awesome team I have. First of all, I love Adobe's products. You know, the products are sexy, right? And I'm a product person. That's actually where, you know, if we started the conversation around, right? I, I love product. I love creating product. I, you know, we talked a little about how we were both into art. You know, I love creating and products, whether it's a piece of clay, a canvas, a product, I love creating products. And every time I see a demo of Creative Cloud or Experience Manager or parts of Experience Cloud, I know this sounds crazy, but I fall in love. Like, I'm like, this is super sexy stuff. And it's so, and it's, it's, it's super sexy, but it's also smart in the sense that it solves real problems for people, right? So it's not just like a cool, fun looking app, but it, so it has depth and it's beautiful. And so <laughs> I, I'm constantly fascinated with that. I think the second is I've been fortunate to continue to, to change myself and in doing that, continue to grow at Adobe. So that's the second. And third is that I've had the fortune of building a good part of my team and I really enjoy the people I work with. And that's something that maybe earlier in my career, I didn't factor in as much and in my current state, I recognize that the who you work with is as important as sort of all these other aspects. And so uh, it's hard because my team, it would be hard to move. And I think Adobe would have an issue with it too. The, as far as what I think about in terms of keep, you know, keeping my team together is I get a lot of questions from people I coach because one part of everybody believes that part of their career journey is they have to manage people. And so they, you know, they'll come to me and they say, I want to manage people. What have you learned about managing people? And I almost like, I just recently was thinking about this. And I think that one thing I would advise myself and others on that question would be to flip it around and say, what is the type of person you need to become so that people will follow no matter what the org chart says? That is such a powerful question. You haven't written your book yet. There's your book. You just need to write a book about that. You should write an instruction manual on becoming that person. I, you, got a, you got a pre-made book. We'll have you back on the show. You can come talk about your book. <laughs> Sounds great, Jess. <laughs> I'm glad we could decide that. I'm glad that we could, you know, have this have this session here to decide what your book's about. Listen, this has been really fun. Uh, congratulations on all the success. And, and thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jess, for inviting me and enjoy the conversation as well. You bet. Bye, everyone. 